Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're going to be talking about morality and free will as we look at an unbelievable debate. But unlike you, I've concluded that Christianity is not only irrational, it's poison. You, you won't, the, the beauty is, is that you won't find many people that want okay. to be tortured all day long. No, they don't. But you might find people like Genghis Khan who yeah. have the ability to torture people all day long because yes. they get a trip out of it. Yeah. And what's wrong with Genghis Khan doing that if that's just the way he's wired? It's not wrong in an ultimate sense. Okay, sure. So, so why so should Genghis him. Khan care? I, no, he I submit to you which is the more poisonous. The one that says morality is real and we're accountable or the one that says morality is not ultimately real and we're not culpable. Justin Brierley has been the host of the unbelievable radio show and podcast for years and years. In fact, it has to be more than 10 years ago now. I remember when I was in, uh, you know, reading up and still learning a lot in apologetics at the, toward the beginning of my uh, interest in it, uh, I discovered Unbelievable Radio, and it was so great because you could hear people on both sides of issues that have to do with worldview and history and philosophy and science, and you could listen to them kind of have a cordial and friendly debate right there on the show, and it was just, it just so great. And it was clear then that Justin was an apologist in his own right, that he knew quite a bit more than you really ever heard from him. You could tell that by the questions that he asked. And so recently, Justin Brierley had what, to my knowledge, is his first debate. Now, if he's had another one, I'm just not aware of it. But uh, he's having his first debate on the question, is Christianity rational? And what a person for him to be debating for this first debate. And that is Stephen Woodford of the YouTube channel Rationality Rules. And I have other videos on the channel here responding to uh, Stephen about various things. But uh, so I thought, you know, this is a debate that, as far as I can tell, kind of flew under the radar. Uh, uh, it looks like it has a number of views here, but I just think there are some, I don't think enough people are aware of it, and I think there's some interesting moments there that we can learn from, and so we're going to take a look at this today. Now, uh, we're going to look first at some of Justin Brierley's opening statements, and in his opening statements, he argued that God um, makes the best sense of human existence, human value, and reason. And uh, while those first two issues are very important, obviously, I want to jump right to where he's talking about reason, because after all, uh, that is not only central to this debate, but it's also uh, central to a lot of what I've done in my own debates. And so let's jump in right now and let's take a listen to Justin Brierley. And as we do, I want to remind you of something, that throughout this discussion, I want you to be thinking about whether or not this atheistic position that Stephen Woodford has, the, uh, Justin's opponent in this debate, whether it makes the best sense. Because I love the way Justin said it. He's saying that this Christian theistic position does make the best sense. Because when you look at atheism, it seems like there are a number of things that we just kind of have to, that really seem to be the case. Like everything seems to fit there, but on atheism, you have to reject it and just pretend that it's real or, um, or, or just kind of uh, live as though it's real when it's really not. And you'll see what I mean when we talk about free will and morality as we move forward. But let's begin looking at Justin Brierley now. Thirdly, I think God makes sense of human reason. Now, as his YouTube name, Rationality Rules, suggests, Stephen is a committed defender of reason. But atheist materialism fundamentally undermines the very rationality that Stephen says rules. Why? Well, Stephen is an atheist materialist, as I said, and therefore, quite rightly, a determinist. He believes there's no such thing as free will. We live in a closed system, a universe of purely material cause and effect. What that means is you had no choice of being here. You had no choice in the clothes you're wearing or the millions of large or tiny decisions that you make every day. In the end, it's just about atoms and electrons doing their thing. There's actually not even a you to speak of, just a collection of utterly predetermined processes going on in your brain. Determinism also means that if you're a Christian here tonight, you didn't choose to be. And if you're an atheist, you didn't choose to be. The universe chose it for you. One brain happens to fizz in one way that makes them an atheist, and another brain happens to fizz in another way that makes them a Christian. And in the end, there's nothing true or false about the activity of electrons in our brains. But you might be starting to see the problem now. You see, if we never choose our beliefs, but they're handed to us by a non-rational, determined process, then we haven't actually arrived at them through a process of reasoning. That's why atheistic determinism fundamentally undermines the concept of reason to begin with. That means that Stephen and his fellow atheists have effectively sawn off the branch that they're sitting on. 
Yes, I think this is such a valuable point, and it's one that so often goes unmentioned and unnoticed. Thank you, Justin, for bringing it out. I brought it out in my own debate and have in several videos, and I think it's difficult for some people to pick up on exactly why this is the case the first time that they hear this sort of reasoning. But here goes. Like Justin just explained, if it is the case that uh, determinism is true, now let me just lay out, there are various ways that philosophers think about the nature of freedom. Some people hold to what is called determinism, and determinism is the position that Stephen Woodford holds to, and many of your naturalistic atheist thinkers, if not most, and that is because if God does not exist, I'd contend, as it sounds like Justin does, that there is no explanation for how one can have free will. And so people like Stephen would say, yeah, it's just, we're all just determined. And what that means is that uh, the universe is like a chain of dominoes stretching back for billions of years. In fact, it's like billions of trains of dominoes. And so the, your pa the past history of the universe, your past life experiences, the formation of your neural structure and the experiences that you have and all of those things, the firings of neurons in your brain result in what we call your choices. But they're really not free. They could not have been otherwise. And if we could have known all of the inputs, we could have predicted with precision exactly what you were going to do, even if you didn't know what you were going to do, because it's all just been determined. Now, people typically understand what determinism is when they think about their, their actions, what they end up doing. But it's more than that. It's not just your actions that are determined. It's also your beliefs and your thoughts so that whatever you're thinking right now, it could not have been otherwise. And so this determinism goes very, very deep because your thoughts are connected to your mental states, which are reducible to your brain states, which are reducible to your biology, which extends to things that happened before you were ever born. And as a result of that, everything you believe and think was determined. Now, rationality is related to reason, and reason is this process by which we think about the evidence and think about what we know, and we choose, which indicates freedom, right? We freely choose to affirm this thing rather than this other false thing or thing that we believe is false, right? That's what rationality is. It's a process of choosing what you should affirm out of the things that you know and the available evidence. If determinism is true, then there is no choosing. Whatever you end up believing, you had to believe and you could not have believed otherwise. Which means if a person ends up believing that he is Chewbacca, he was determined to believe that and couldn't have not believed that he was Chewbacca. And the person who believes like Stephen Woodford does got there because that's what he was determined to believe and he couldn't have believed otherwise. He was determined to believe it. And that is very, very important because what it is is the death of rationality. Uh, I'm not the only one who thinks so. Let me help out just real quick by reading to you from what some other thinkers have to say about this. John Searle says this, Actions are rationally assessable if and only if the actions are free. For the connection is this, rationality must be able to make a difference. See, if it's all determined, then whatever you're calling rationality doesn't really make a difference in what you will affirm because you, have, you will end up affirming. You are determined to affirm the thing that you will affirm. Rationality is possible only where there is a genuine choice between various rational and irrational courses of action. If the act cannot be otherwise, then rationality can make no difference. It doesn't even come into play. That's from Rationality in Action by John Searle, 2001, page 202. He also says rationality is only possible where irrationality is possible. How can you say you're free to choose to affirm the correct thing when you're only determined to affirm one thing? You have to have the freedom to choose the rational or irrational option, or else it's not really a free choice. But the possibility of each requires freedom. So in order to believe rationally, I can do so only if I am free to make any of a number of possible choices and have open the possibility of behaving irrationally. When we perform conscious voluntary actions, we typically have a sense of alternative possibilities, pages 66 and 67. Angus Manoush says, rationality presupposes an entity with libertarian free will that can act on some reasons rather than others. That's from uh, his article in Philosophia Christi, volume 15, number 1, 2013, page 95. Evan Fowley says, and we're, we're getting through this, stay with me, okay? We're just getting through this. I just want to lay out what uh, 
um, what, what thinkers have said on this. Evan Fowley says, The analysis of free choice, which I shall propose, derives in part from Aristotle's conception of practical reasoning. According to it, acting freely consists in acting as a result of rational deliberation over what act to perform. That's what we said, right? Ra reason is a process. Rationality is a process about where you think of the different things that you know and the evidence and decide what you will affirm. To choose is to deliberate. It is not to perform some superated act of will. This conception of freedom makes obvious the connection between being free and having the capacity to engage in rational deliberation. If all things are causally determined, now this is from my friend Tim Stratton that I'm going to read you now, and it'll be the last thing I read, but I want you to hear this. Tim Stratton has done a lot of work on this. I think he's writing his dissertation on this subject, and he runs a, a, a website called Free Thinking. And um, so, by the way, if you're an atheist, the last thing you are is a free thinker because you'll think that determinism is true, right? Uh, and if determinism is true, you're not thinking freely. All your thoughts are determined. So here's what Stratton says. If all things are causally determined, then that includes all thoughts and beliefs. If our thoughts and beliefs are forced upon us and we could not have chosen better beliefs, then we're simply left assuming, and I love that he uses this word, you would just have to assume that you have the right belief, right? We're left simply left assuming that our determined beliefs are good, let alone true. Therefore, we could never rationally affirm that our beliefs are the inference to the best explanation. We can only, there it is again, we can only assume it. Because we just find ourselves believing this. We feel like we chose and went through a rational process, but it was all determined every step of the way. Here's the big problem for the atheistic naturalist. If it logically follows that if naturalism is true, then atheists, or anyone else for that matter, cannot possess knowledge. Knowledge is defined as justified true belief. One can happen to have true beliefs. Now, this is important. Some people will say, well, look, like, you know, determined systems like computers and calculators, they don't, they don't, they're not, they're not free and thinking, but they give rational, correct answers. Aha, they give correct answers, but there was no process of deliberating and choosing which thing you could affirm. So yeah, but they get the right answer, right? Yeah, you can get the right answer. And if you are determined to believe whatever you believe, you may happen to end up believing the right thing, but that doesn't mean you got there through a process of rationality. And that is very, very important. Tim Stratton finishes, however, if they do not possess warrant or justification for a specific belief, their belief does not qualify as a knowledge claim. If one cannot freely infer the best explanation, then one has no justification that their belief really is the best explanation. Without justification, knowledge goes down the drain. All we are left with is question-begging assumptions. Now, here's what I want you to get out of that. It's not just that if, it, look, if determinism is true, rationality is out the window. Everything you believe is determined. But if that's the case, then you can never know that what you never, you never have justification or warrant for the beliefs that you hold. So think about this. Um, let's imagine that you suddenly found out that um, your every thought, your every belief that you have is being controlled by some Jedi out there somewhere so, or some mad scientist, right? That they're, they're determining your every thought, your every belief, including what you're thinking right now as you're watching this video and the next words that are going to come out of your mouth. If that were the case and you don't know the motivations of this Sith or this uh, mad scientist, then are, do you have justification for, uh, for saying that what you believe is true? Or any warrant for that? No, you just have to assume that it is because you know that every step of the reasoning process is being determined by a person whose motivations you don't know and don't have access to. Now, it's actually worse than that for atheism because there's not even a mad scientist. It's just the past history of the universe determining everything blindly that you will think so that the man who thinks he's Chewbacca got there the same way the man who believes that he's a great atheist philosopher. And that is they were both determined to believe what they believe and they could not have believed otherwise. This is damning to rationality. This is damning to reason. And you have no justification or warrant even for knowledge claims. And all of that I think is very important to keep in mind as we move forward. So great point from Justin Brierley. And I want to move forward now and I want to take a look at a couple of things that uh, Stephen Woodford has to say. Let's jump in right here. Oh, by the way, I should say he, for much of his opening statements, he, he kind of, um, you know, he's very good with the crowd. He's good at rhetoric. Uh, in fact, Rhetoric's not a bad thing. You know, Christopher Hitchens, unfortunately, people seem to think that Christopher Hitchens was some kind of a great philosopher. 
ouch, Hitchens was not some great philosopher, um, not some great, you know, logician or anything like that. Uh, but he was an inspired debater and an incredible um, rhetorician. And as a result, he could impact a crowd with his words. And that is why you have now a generation of YouTubers, YouTube atheists, who seemed to be convinced that he was some kind of an incredible thinker or, or a philosopher when really it was, I mean, he's a really smart guy, don't get me wrong, but he did literally nothing to challenge the classical theistic arguments or the case for the resurrection. But what he did, he did with rhetoric. And we see some rhetoric here with Stephen. I think he's, he's, got, he's an up-and-coming uh, great public speaker. I mean, uh, and, he, and he says a lot of things that give you that um, provocative pow. I mean, he says Christianity is, uh, let's see, he says there's, uh, he goes on talking about how we lower our standards, we Christians lower our standards for everything else. Um, uh, or no, we lower our standards for Christianity, but we have high standards of reason and stuff like that for everything else, just like he does. Why are we special pleading for Christianity? You get a lot of these chest-thumping type comments, but those are those are rhetoric. You know, he's, he didn't give us any, you know, he says that uh, science had to drag Christianity into the 21st century where Christianity had to, has the audacity to say it wanted to be there all the time. I mean, this is all just chest-thumping type stuff, but you get that in debate. It's going to happen, and it moves the crowd. I mean, I think that's probably the most powerful uh, thing that YouTube atheism has for it is the mockery. That's, I think the mockery has done more to persuade people on YouTube than atheist arguments could ever hope of doing. Uh, but all that being said, all that being said, he does come around to saying some things that I think we should respond to. So let's start with that right now. But unlike you, I've concluded that Christianity is not only irrational, it's poison. Okay, he says that Christianity is not only irrational, but poison. I'd like to know what he means by that. Because on his worldview, Stephen, as you'll see later in the video, is happy to admit that there is no ultimate good or bad or evil. You know, there's nothing really like that out there in an ultimate sense. There's no objective morality. There is this subjective morality, and we can build something that, that, that has objective ways of, of, of working within the world, but outside of that, like a chess game, you know, you, you know, chess is subjectively designed, but then within the chess game, there are objectively good and bad moves within the subjectively chosen rules of chess, right? And so, so he doesn't have some objective foundation, so he can't be meaning that it's like evil. Um, I don't know what he means. Perhaps he just means he doesn't like it. But I want us to continue through this, and this is the thing I really want you to hone in on. Two, two things, really. One is whether or not, um, like which view makes the best sense of the data that we both agree about. We both agree that it seems as though strongly, uh, borderline, undeniably seems that morality is real and that free will is real. Um, which worldview makes the best sense of that and which one leaves you with this in this position where you have to live your life as though free will is real and as though morality is real when it's not. I want you to think about that. And then secondly, as he says here that Christianity is poison, I want you to consider, and it's, yeah, it's great rhetoric, Stephen, I, I should say. Uh, Stephen's got, um, has been very successful on YouTube. He seems like a wonderful human being. Um, so all of this is to the content, not to you as the content creator. I'm responding to the points that are being made. Nevertheless, um, it's, it's important that we ask this question because it seems to me that atheist, the atheist position that Stephen is putting forward, the way he articulates it, is actually the thing that we could describe as most poisonous and not the position that says morality is real and free will is real and moral culpability is real, but let's just keep trucking now. But there we have it on the page. And by the way, back to Hitchens again, this kind of, I don't know if he's channeling Hitchens here, but this kind of demonstrates the point that I'm making about these YouTube atheists and Hitchens. Hitchens' book was called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Well, we're going to find out which position seems most poisonous as we move forward. So, on that light note, next question. If you could please raise your hands again if you're Christian, and keep them raised if you believe that life starts at conception. I'm not doing this to judge you, I'm just trying to find out a thing here. Okay, cool. Now, it's an interesting split, and considering that you all have access to the same divine book, and yet you have a staggeringly different views, 
does this mean that a portion of you have irrational beliefs? If so, don't worry, it's them, not you. What about gay marriage? Please put your hand up if you're for it. If you think that homosexuals should be allowed to marry, please put your hand up. Again, there's a split. And again, what does this mean in terms of rationality? You all have the same divine message, and yet you have staggeringly different views. Remember, this is divine revelation we're speaking about. This isn't some <coughs> assertion that's been made at the pub. This is coming from an all-powerful, almighty God. You would think it would be a little clearer. Right, last one. Please put your hands up if you accept evolution by natural selection. I'll be honest, that is more than I expected. Progress. Okay. But there is another split, and that is predictably irrational. You'd have thought that Genesis would have made us all convinced that man was created by God, and indeed, most Christians throughout history have believed exactly that. Okay, now, uh, the reason, Stephen, the reason, I mean, this all, I, I'm not trying to do this artificially. All of this kind of does go back to the determinism and the free will discussion, because the reason that you end up with people having varying beliefs on particular doctrinal issues and social issues is precisely because we have free will and other people have free will uh, for the following reason. Um, because you have free will, you can make real choices about what you want to affirm and what you don't want to affirm, what, what, what sort of things you want to study and what you don't want to study, who you're going to listen to. Um, and there are people out there who are trying to deceive you, and you might have chosen to listen to them freely. Um, you might have chosen to affirm a particular thing because of bad motivations, or perhaps you haven't read the scriptures as much as you should, and so you're affirming based on what you do know from the scripture and what you know from the culture, but not from the totality of scripture. But the bottom line is, what the scripture teaches ultimately about salvation is not, is not that difficult to ascertain the basics of it. Now, there are nuanced things that we have to, that we have to, um, you know, that we have to really interpret and think about, and that's true. But because we have libertarian free will, we choose how and what we're going to study and who we're going to listen to, and other people choose what they're going to tell us about what the Bible says. Now, you might say, yeah, but, but God could have just changed all of that. Why would God allow for something like that that could lead to the kinds of confusions that we have? I'll give you a real good reason. It's because this libertarian freedom, this ability to have done other than whatever we ended up doing or nothing external to ourselves determines our actions, is the reason, is the, is the means by which we can have meaningful love, meaningful, pure altruism, rational um, uh, affirmations and things like that is because we uh, have this ability to have libertarian free will. Let's just go with love. Love requires that you have the ability to love or to not love, to sacrifice, to give of yourself for the good of another. If free will does not exist, then it just becomes a, a determined process, and there's really no, there's nothing, I mean, it's not real love. We're just, in the words of C.S. Lewis, automatons, right? Um, so this, this, is a, this, is a serious, this is a serious problem. But we have this free will, and because of that, we can have the love. But now here's the catch. God, even God, cannot force you to freely do the right thing all the time. So if you're going to give someone free will so that they can have love, because that's what the Bible says. I mean, to do an internal discussion here, the Bible says that we're to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love God and love everybody else. That's the biblical message summed up. And if we're going to be able to do that, we have to have free will. Now, along with that free will, because God can't force you to freely always do the right thing, along with that is going to come a lot of evil. Along with that is going to come sin. Along with that is going to come misunderstandings and confusions and deceivers that some people listen to and all of that. But here's the, here's the catch. Here's the trick. It's that the love is the overarching good that uh, makes all of that worth it. It's the... Um, it's the, it's, it's the it's the thing that's valuable enough that it's worth having these imperfections. But the simple gospel message is not that difficult to attain. It's really, it's really not. Um, all right, let's skip ahead and let's hear. But, but see, I want you to see that's the point. He rejects this idea of free will, but that's the reason. All right, let's skip ahead now and hear what he has to say on uh, the same point, but a few seconds later. According to Christianity, uh, sorry, according to the Christian worldview, that is, according to the worldview of Justin and most of you here, 
there is a God. And this God has the most profound, important message for you and I. So profound, in fact, that there has never been a message that's been more important, and there likely never will be. What's more, this God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once, and all-loving. That is, he's omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipresent um, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. What this means is that this, this God can, could, by definition, click his fingers, and instantly we'd all receive this most important message, and it would, by definition, be tailored in such a way that we would all accept it in its entirety. We would all be Christian. And better still, we would all be of the exact same sect. There would be no atheists, no Muslims, no Hindus, and no Buddhists, because in this case, God really would have written it on our hearts. Okay, now, um, uh, there's a couple of discussions going on right here at once, both at the same time. Uh, First of all, there is the discussion about belief in the sense of mental assent and belief in a different sense. When Christians talk about belief, and Christians do this sometimes without realizing it as well, when we're talking about believing in Jesus, on the one hand, we might be referring to what is called mental assent, that is, just believing intellectually that Jesus is God, Um, believing that the proposition is true, right? Um, And of course we believe in that sense. Everyone who's a Christian believes in that sense. The proposition is true. Jesus was God incarnate. He died, was buried, rose again. We all say that. On the other hand, um, belief in Jesus can mean trust and um, loyalty to Jesus. And so when you say, are you believing in Jesus? Yeah, I mean, I believe that he exists. No, are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting? Are you living the the loyal Christian life? Are you being faithful in that sense? Now, this is very important because, yes, it is the case. He could be saying two things here. On the one hand, Stephen could mean God could snap his fingers and deterministically, deterministically change all our beliefs such that they are correct and such that we only want to serve him. Now, if he does, so that's, that's one possibility, determinism. But the libertarian freedom is valuable, as we've said in our previous discussion. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is God could evidence us. He could instantly make it clear to us that we should freely choose to uh, accept Christianity. Now, if that's what he means... And this is what it sounds like it means to us, because he knows that we don't affirm, that Justin doesn't affirm, and uh, many of his Christian audience doesn't affirm it, he, uh, determinism, that we affirm libertarian freedom. It sounds like what he's saying is God could just make us aware of all the information that we would all freely choose to become Christians. If that's the case, I'm not so sure. Frankly, I think, Stephen, you've got um, more optimism, frankly, for many people in the world. Um, and, and, that, and, and here's why I say that. We are pretty good at lying to ourselves, and we're pretty good at helping ourselves to our own beliefs. And yes, it is the case that God could make all of that so clear that it would be hard to deny, and frankly, I think that he has. But I'll go with you on this for a moment. He could make it clear like visual certainty in front of us. But that would not mean that everyone... So in that case, everyone would believe in Jesus in terms of mental assent. Intellectually, they would know that it was true. But it doesn't mean that they would necessarily believe in Jesus in the sense of trusting and worshiping him. In fact, when I was debating Matt Dillahunty, I, I read, he brought out this whole thing from Divine Hiddenness. It was kind of along the similar lines. And, uh, and he said, look, God could make it clear. And I said, look, I read from Dillahunty's own, uh, one of his own videos where Dillahunty said, if God made it, cert- it, made it where I was certain that, that he existed and that Jesus was his son, I still would not worship that God because he disagreed with the idea of worship and he disagreed with the worshiping Yahweh. Well, that's fine, but you understand there that that tells me that it's not true what Stephen says here, that every, there would be no more Muslims, there would be no more atheists, there, would be no, there may be no more atheists, and it may even be that everyone accepts that Christianity is true, but that doesn't mean that everyone would be a Christian. In fact, I'll go a step further. I don't even think it's necessarily true that there wouldn't be any Muslims and wouldn't be any more uh, Jews and wouldn't be any more uh, Hindus or whatever, atheists, whatever you want to say, because people are pretty good at lying to themselves and saying, hey, you know, that perhaps that was a demon trying to deceive everyone. Uh, perhaps that was a, uh, a psychological manifestation of my mind, even though everyone else is telling me it's true. 
Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Who knows? We, we're good at making a way out of that. I mean, after all, I've said many times that Stephen says in this video that Dillahunty, Matt Dillahunty, is one of his heroes. And Dillahunty said in our debate, that agreed with when I quoted him from something he'd said before, that if someone parted an ocean in Jesus' name, that he still wouldn't believe anything supernatural had even happened. If this is the case, then no, nothing that you're saying right now flies. You could still have deniers. You could still have skeptics because that's the thing about skepticism. You can always ratchet, ratchet it up as high as you want. All right, so let's get ahead here and take a look at the cross-examination or question time that they're having, and let's take a look at some of the things that came up there. Determinism is by definition reasonable. Is it? Because, because so? if you can... Okay, now what he's saying is that determinism is rational by definition. If you can trace back in a deterministic way, then you're relying on reason to do so. But in the very act of processing, tracing back in a deterministic way, all the beliefs and thoughts you're having in that process have been predetermined. There's no reason to believe you're having true beliefs because they're simply the product of non-rational processes in your brain. That's the problem. At every level, it doesn't make sense. It completely undercuts itself, as far as I can see. That's, that's honestly, I mean, this was a big, a big, Part of my journey was reading C.S. Lewis, and if you read his book Miracles, mm -hmm. he makes this case for the argument from reason, it's called. And it was like a, a penny dropped in my mind, and I thought, wow, this makes sense. How can you believe in reason if you believe we live in an entirely naturalistic universe? It, it, it seems to me that what you're pressing on there is the, um, is the idea that we don't know anything with certainty, or I can't because of my world. No, it's not, it's not that you can't know anything with certainty, because uh, what he means there is he's pointing toward what is known as Cartesian certainty after Rene Descartes, the idea that, um, you know, could, can I know this with like absolute 100% beyond doubting? It's impossible to doubt. And that's not what we're talking about here. That's not the point that this raises. That's not the issue that it gets at. What it gets at is that this determinism, back to this discussion again, this determinism that you're talking about um, is... Each step of the way is just as much determined. So if you're, if you're, tra he's saying it's reasonable because you can trace back and look at each step of the causal determined chain, the reasons you came to believe what you did. But even in that analysis, everything you're thinking about, that is also determined and you have no choice over your beliefs. And so you get into a loop that you just simply can't get out of. Um, let's go on to the next thing and take a look. And by the way, um, as, we're, as we're going on, I think I missed a clip somewhere, so I'll just share it with you here. Somewhere in here, Stephen talks about Jesus, and he talks about uh, the Bible and how it is that we have to believe, we just have to trust in these copies of copies of manuscripts, of amendments, of copies of translations. You know, this, this whole chant that we hear a lot of time in the atheist online community uh, mostly in the atheist online community and not as much in the uh, scholarly community. And there's there's something I want to read to you here. This is this is data. I'm not sure if this is a quote or not because I wrote it a while back, but this is data um, that uh, Craig Blomberg shares. It's just a good point that I think needs to be raised when we talk about can we trust these manuscripts. Um, he says, Ehrman talks about there being 200,000 to 400,000 textual variants in all of the New Testament manuscripts before the printing press in 1440 A.D. Since there are only 138,000 words in the whole New Testament, some readers might think that means every word was in question, with most of them have, having multiple possible alternatives. This is false. There are, these are spread out over among over 5,000 manuscripts, there are 20,000 translations into other Middle Eastern, Eastern, and European languages from Greek. That means you have an average of 8 to 16 unique variants per manuscript. Not that scary. Some of this is stuff that's as simple. Some of these variants between manuscripts are as simple as one says Jesus, one says the Lord Jesus, one says Jesus Christ. One is pluralized when another one isn't. These are not things that change doctrine or big, you know, important aspects of the Christian faith. We have an incredibly valuable manuscript tradition and if we were find we were to find some weird copy that has some you know it looks like it's supposed to be the same text but has these wild variants we have a big enough manuscript tradition that we can sh you know, we can hold it up to that and say which one is likely to be true this one weird copy we have or this great manuscript tradition that is just more chest thumping and mockery and it needed to be uh, called out I think another thing is he challenged the fact that or the question of why is it that um, it seems that 
Why is it that this gospel message, this Messiah, came when he did? I mean, why do we here now have to look back 2,000 years to some backwater, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, this is the kind of stuff you hear. Why Israel in the first century, in other words? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a real good reason for that. He came at the, I mean, you know, I don't know the thinking of God, but it's actually pretty easy to look at what happened and understand that there were some really good reasons for it to happen when it happened. Now, first of all, um, I think he calls it somehow, God, I wish I'd played the clip. He calls it something like breathtakingly. This God with its divine intelligence chose to convey this most important message and with it the balance of eternal pleasure and eternal suffering to a small group of people in a breathtakingly illogical, irrational way. The idea of bringing the gospel in that context and at that time. But it's actually not. It's actually kind of brilliant. First of all, it's a bit silly to think of it as ignorant or whatever word that he uses to, to describe it there because it actually did work, didn't it? I mean, can you really argue with the idea that the gospel has pretty well spread in an amazingly effective way? I mean, there are still places that are in the 1040 window. That's the uh, groups that have not yet heard the gospel. But I mean, worldwide, globally, the gospel has made a huge impact, not just in terms of its reach, but in terms of architecture and in terms of literature and music and, uh, and just people's lives all over the world. So how, I mean, how with a straight face do you say that it's an ignorant or, uh, you know, breathtaking decision to bring it when and how you do when it, like, has been really, really effective. Now, I'm not using that as an argument to say that, therefore, God exists, because someone could rightly say, well, Islam has been really effective and, and stuff like that. Sure, Islam has been effective in reaching, too. But if you're going to say that it was a bad idea to bring it when it came, like, it wouldn't be as effective... Um, that's just to ignore modern culture and the history of humanity back to 2,000 years. So uh, that's a bit odd. Um, but on top of that, it came at a time when it had, it had just now been the case that because of Rome, we had this ability to, uh, to travel to f very far away distant lands with road systems and boats and all kinds of things, and you could travel there peacefully because of Rome, and, and you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be in so much danger to travel and to go and serve as a missionary and travel around the world and share the gospel that way. If you want a message to have an effect, that is an important piece of the puzzle is that you are able to travel great distances to faraway lands. The second thing that would be important that had now become, uh, become possible is that the common Greek language was now there. Uh, people from various backgrounds and various nations spoke Greek. It had become somewhat of a universal language in the known world around the Mediterranean at the time. And so for that reason, people could not only travel to these different places, but they could actually share the gospel message in a common language. Both of those are so important. And then lastly, there's a lot more we could say about this, in fact, but, but I'll just sum it up with this. <clears throat> Romans brought in soldiers to serve from various provinces all over the place. And those soldiers would come and then hear the gospel message, and then they would end up inevitably taking it wherever they went on their tour of duty and then taking it back wherever they came from. In fact, it's believed that this is how Britain first received the gospel. So all of this, you have like built-in missionaries, you have a common language, you have this peaceful uh, ability to travel. All of this makes coming in first century Israel like the, the, the first optimal time to bring a message like that and to write it down so that it could be uh, transmitted and, uh, and, and, rely, and then copied and copied and copied and copied so that we have all these copies. I mean, uh, it's just, it's just kind of silly. All right, let's go on, and we're about done here. Let's go on to this discussion of morality during the question and answer time. Um, well, we could talk about another of the, the, the issues I brought up, which is um, the, um, the issue of morality, um, which in a way ties in with what we've just been talking about because if there is no ultimate um, freedom, uh, because we're all ultimately determined. Uh, as you yourself know, I've seen you talk about this on your videos, there's no ultimate mor moral blame or praise that can be attributed to anyone. We were all bound to do the things we do. So no one's really done anything wrong, no one's really done anything right. You've just acted either according to our genes or the electrons or whatever level you want to go to. So when you come up here and say, isn't it terrible, isn't religion a poison, isn't it all awful? 
how can you even stand on that statement if there is no such thing ultimately as anyone doing anything right or wrong because we were all determined to do whatever we did anyway. Sure, so there's, so <clears throat> there's a question there with morality and a question there with free will. I don't necessarily think that they're tethered, but I understand you presented them as such. Um, when it comes to morality, we all just want to be able to say it's wrong to murder, period. And that is something that's very comforting about religious belief. You can just say, do not murder, period. Or you could say, uh, um, uh, abortion is wrong, period. But as we saw today, uh, it turns out that you can't. Um, because still, the religious have um, moral subjectivity because they have to interpret it, which a God could have fixed, I might add. But when it comes to morality, so far as I'm concerned, you and I are born, and we find ourselves in this world where there's certain things that we want to experience and certain things that we don't. That is something, if you will, that is written on your heart because it's in your, in your genes, it's in your DNA. And there are right and wrong ways, so far as we can tell, to achieve those things. And then we collaborate and we set up uh, societies and we set up situations in which we can pursue those goals. But if you're looking for an ultimate, an ultimate murder is wrong. No, it's not out there. Okay. So ultimate isn't, murder ultimately isn't wrong. No. It's just our personal preferences. It's not just personal preferences. No? Uh, it, it depends on how we use the, the definitions of these things. But what it is is that you have a compulsion straight from the outset, wired into you, where you don't want to suffer. Mm -hmm. So do I. Yeah. Um, and then we make agreements to make a, a society, a system. Sure. Which well, if we agree on, on the outcome, then yeah, we can get, yeah. in a sense, an objective way of doing that. You, but, you won't, the, but, the beauty is, is that you won't find many people that want okay. to be tortured all day long. No, they don't. But you might find people like Genghis Khan, who mm -hmm. have the ability to torture people all day long because yes. they get a trip out of it. Yeah. And what's wrong with Genghis Khan doing that if that's just the way he's wired? It's not wrong in an ultimate sense. Okay. What is wrong about that? Um, is that it's in conflict with the uh, preferences, if you will, uh, with pretty much everyone else. Sure. So, so why so should Genghis Khan care? No, he should Okay, right. This is what makes things difficult. I, okay. feel, I feel like we're mired in the religious land. Okay, uh, this is what I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, Stephen says something like, you're, you're speaking as though the, the free will thing and the morality is connected, and, and I don't think they have to be, or something like that. Um, but, but look, the, the question that was raised, so there's two things here. I say when I talk about morality and free will, people between atheists and Christians always talk about whether and how morality is objective or subjective, and whether you can have objective morality without God and all that, you know, real morality, ultimate morality, as Stephen wants to say it. And, and what I say in my free will argument is, hey, you know what, take that and let's just give you everything you want. Steve is not even asking for it, but let's just say you could have objective morality without God. You can't. <laughs> you can't, and Stephen knows it, but let's just say that, you, that you've got that. I'll give you all that. If determinism is true, then it's still a moot morality. And what, that, what I mean by that is whatever you do, whether you become some kind of a racial hater or you become a benefactor or, or a, a philanthropist, whatever you do, which is good or bad, you could not have done otherwise. So how could you ever hold someone morally culpable? Well, you can't, and Stephen understands that. And so I would drive that point home and point and talk about whether or not that makes sense of the nature of reality. But here's the thing. Uh, Stephen instead goes to this whole typical discussion of objective versus subjective things. That's an important discussion too, but we're used to hearing about that in these kind of debates and talks. What I think we've heard less of is the drilling down on, even if you had objective morality, if determinism is true, then if I find myself um, you know, hating gay people or hating black people or whatever thing and, and th that we would reject, you know, just like Christians and atheists should reject, but, but if I found myself doing that, I, I couldn't help it. I literally couldn't help it. it I was just determined to do it. Um, and I think, uh, if, I, if I'm correct, Stephen says, well, let me, let me say this and then we'll tie it together. So uh, on this objective, subjective stuff, he says there is no ultimate objective morality like that. And Justin says, okay, but if, Geng if somebody like Genghis Khan did what he did, why shouldn't he? And... Stephen says, well, he, sh he shouldn't, shouldn't, right? It's not, it's not that he shouldn't, because there is no ultimate right or wrong. It's just the way it is. And this is what happens next. Language, per se, and so we can't actually address these issues with the sincerity that we need. So this, the problem for me, and I'm, where we're probably getting to the end of this time, is that if you can't say Genghis Khan didn't really do anything wrong, 
that fundamentally goes against everything that makes us human. And so the reason Christianity is rational, why God makes sense, is because I cannot dispense with that moral view about what makes humans humans. How do you not see that as an appeal to emotion? Well, it's an appeal to our most basic fundamental instinct. Okay, is it an appeal to emotion? Because what Justin is saying is uh, that is absurd, basically is what he should be saying. I think he is saying, well, that's just, that's on the face of it absurd. This is kind of like um, in the, uh, in William Lane Craig's moral argument in premise two, um, and I, I, I defend premise two of my free will argument the same way, but in premise two of the free will argument, if someone challenges that, and says, how do you know that morality is objective in that way? What William Lane Craig will do is to say that, all right, look, a good argument has to have premises that are plausible. And what that means is that the premises are more likely to be true than false. That's a good argument. It has to have premises that are plausible, more likely to be true than false. Okay, but to argue that morality is, is not objective, that it's not really wrong to do a genocide or something, that's not wrong morally in a sense somewhat similar to 2 plus 2 equals 7 being wrong mathematically, right? I mean, it's, it's really wrong. And uh, to say that it's not, you're never going to have an argument. Your argument will contain premises that are less plausible than our immediate knowledge that morality is objective in that sense. A way to think about this is, what if I was to try and convince you that you don't exist, Right? It'd be ridiculous, right? But what if I had all this evidence and all this data and I had put together this syllogism to show you that you don't exist? It will fail. We don't even have to think about it. We know it'll fail. Why? Because, um, among other things, it will contain premises that are less plausible than your immediate knowledge that you do exist, right? So who cares how strong the argument might be? You simply know that you exist. This is what we call the principle of credulity. Uh, the principle of credulity says that I'm, if I have a belief that, uh, this is with religious experience, Swinburne does it, but I'm applying it here to say something like, if I have a belief that it seems impossible to doubt, it seems absurd to doubt it, then I am justified in affirming that belief until such a time as somebody gives me overwhelming evidence to show me that I'm wrong. And the fact of the matter is, you will never be able to demonstrate to me a more plausible premise than my immediate knowledge that torturing babies for the fun of it is and always will be wrong in, in, in an objective sense. So it's, it, is it, does it involve emotion? Well, these are emotionally potent ideas. Uh, but, you know, whoever you are listening, you're probably on one side or the other issue from me on the abortion issue. Whichever side you're on, that is an emotionally potent debate. But the argument can be salient, and this is what's going on here. I think there's a, good, there's a good argument based on this. But yeah, it's emotionally powerful, but that doesn't mean it's an appeal to emotion. Uh, but, uh, but here's what I want you to come down to. What is the more poisonous view? We were told at the top of this thing from Stephen Woodford that Christianity is not only irrational, but it is poison. Now, what we've heard from the Christian in this debate is that morality is real, some things really are good, and some things really are bad, really are right, really are wrong. We've heard from the atheists, well, we, you know, we, we decide stuff among ourselves, but, uh, and we know what works best in society, but in an ultimate sense, yeah, there's nothing in the ultimate, it's not really a right or wrong. Genghis Khan, if he's torturing people, he shouldn't feel compelled to stop if he just doesn't. I mean, there's nothing ultimate that says that he should. And now we come to this point where I want to share with you that not only that, but also the um, moral culpability. Because Stephen doesn't even think that people are morally blameworthy or praiseworthy, whatever they do. It's not really their fault. And for that, let me just jump over for a moment. This is a discussion that was being had uh, in Cosmic Skeptics' backyard. Um, and this is, what, uh, this is how I think it goes. Let's just... Uh, Let's just take a listen here, and uh, I want you to hear what cosmic. I want you to hear what rationality rules has to say. If we accept this book, mm. because it changes everything. So, for example, um, and an example that he uses in here: two people broke into a house, and they did disgusting things in the sense that they they killed, they battered the bloke in the head with, uh, sorry, the father of a family in the head with, um, I think it was a, a vase of some sort. They unfortunately raped um, one of the children. They did basically horrific things. And the point that he's getting to in it 
is that if you accept this, um, the thesis of this book, the idea that we don't have free will, then you can't really say that they could have ought to have done, sorry, that they could have done something yes. else because they couldn't. The point he makes is that if he had every atom that comprises that individual, he would have acted the same way. That's yes. what the evidence shows. Yeah, that's shows. exactly what he says, isn't it? Exactly. So what he's saying there is that you want, you're like, I want him dead, but really should we feel bad for him yes. to go, that's a terrible, terrible situation that he was in to actually do something like yes. that. Well, that's the yeah. thing. It, it... So I, I want you to see this is the moral culpability going away. And there's actually a side of this where it's presented as though, well, yeah, because then we can actually understand people better and we, don't, we, we understand they couldn't help it. And so we, we may still put them in prisons and things like that, but we don't, you know, we don't treat them as though they're some kind of monster because they really couldn't help it. And I, and I get that side of it. But uh, at the same time, to, the, to those of us who understand libertarian freedom to be true, I mean, this, this is just, you're saying, let's make it as bad as it can be. You're saying about someone who, the guy who shot up the, the gay nightclub, he couldn't help it. Don't, don't be upset with him. He couldn't help it. I mean, that is, just, that is just absurd. But that's what determinism gets you. Does it feel like that was wrong and that he could help it and that he shouldn't have done that? Yes, it feels that way. Well, whose worldview makes better sense of it feeling that way? Whose worldview makes better sense of that, that drive for justice? Whose world makes better sense? Uh, well, the, the Christian worldview, the one that affirms libertarian freedom. But this atheistic, naturalistic, deterministic worldview says you have everything inside of you drives for this justice as though it's some good and true and real thing. But it's not really, not in the ultimate sense. It seems bad to do a genocide, but it's not really bad in any ultimate sense. It seems like you have free will, but you don't really have free will in any real sense. I mean, who is having to deny reality here? And whose worldview makes better sense of the data that we see to where you can live it every day in your life? I'm, I'm telling you the Christian one does. The libertarian free wills. It says, look, it's, it feels like you have free will because guess what? You got free will. It feels like people are morally responsible because guess what? They are. It seems as though certain things are right and wrong because certain things are right and wrong. I mean, it's it, it, it slides in nicely. But on this, you have to deny reality all around you. Um, and just to make sure you understand, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting words in his mouth. I'm not trying to mischaracterize him. Listen, listen to Cosmic Skeptic clarifying with, with uh, Stephen what he said. Um, you fully accepted a moment ago that uh, a man who kills somebody's family is not morally accountable. Mm -hmm. Do you feel sorry for that man? Okay, so what I want to wrap this up with is we began with the statement that Christianity was not only irrational but poison. And, and, this, is what, and, and, and this is what it comes down to. I submit to you which is the more poisonous. The one that says morality is real and we're accountable or the one that says morality is not ultimately real and we're not culpable. I think it's a fair choice. Listen, um, I hope you've enjoyed this time we've had together, and you can check us out at uh, trinityradio.org, or you can look at the other videos here on the channel. If you're listening by audio, you can check us out at youtube.com slash Hunter. And by the way, if you'd like to support what we're doing here in responding to YouTube atheists, then um, you can click in the top right-hand corner of this screen, or you can go to patreon.com slash trinityradio. We greatly appreciate it. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.